You're listening to the Fade to Gray Network. Hello, listeners. Today, I have the honor of interviewing and talking with a close friend and former colleague of mine. Today on the show, I'm going to have Rachel Trampler here, who Rachel is someone I got my master's in social work with from Missouri State University. We were in the same class. We spent a lot of time together. Truly, I would not be the social worker I am today or have the skills or even the insight that I do on a daily basis if it weren't for Rachel Trampler. So with no further to do, how are you doing, Rachel? I'm doing pretty good, Seth. How are you? I'm doing well, and I am so happy to have you here. Everybody, Rachel is a licensed clinical social worker, and she is the director of student services at a school in Tulsa, Oklahoma. To give a, a, a little background for our listeners, let's talk a little bit about our graduate program at Missouri State. It's probably one of the best years of my life, Seth. I, I'm going to be honest. I have to say so as well. It was very formative. However, I don't know if it was the program that was the kicker or if it was the group of people that we put together. Right. Like, I don't really know what we did that year, but I know that we had a lot of fun. We took some notes. We had some good drinks and we had a lot of laughs. We did. Yeah. Yeah. But what did we actually do? Yeah, I don't know if we really did that much, but we had a lot of really interesting conversations. And in our cohort, what they call it, I think that my group, with which included Rachel, we were the best students in the program. Would you agree? I mean, by far, we were the best. I would say like we were studious, we were attentive, but we were also probably like the most laid back and down down to earth down to earth yeah i can i can see that we were also young and fresh you know yes yes and let's be honest we were the cool kids everyone wanted to be like us or we thought but... everybody wanted to be like us. <laughs> maybe not. right maybe they all hated us and they have been holding it as a secret this entire time very possible uh, but i should mention that this program uh, was evening classes so oftentimes after class, a group of people would come to my house and we would have very late night study parties in which we essentially came up with a plan to solve all the world's problems. Yeah, I think we're all out now in our respective fields solving all those problems thanks to the late night study sessions at your house. Yes, absolutely. That song, Little Boxes, will forever be in my mind. <laughs> but that's an absolutely. inside joke. Um, I also should mention that since it was an evening class, it is it was not unheard of for a couple of us to maybe, you know, go out and get drinks before class. But we generally got found out. Really, we were just trying to say stay hydrated so we could be <laughs> attentive to our professors. Absolutely. 100%. Why did you choose a career in social work? What led you down this path? I think starting from like a really young age, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. As a really little kid, I would play school with my siblings for fun. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought it was great. Maybe not so much on the other end of my siblings, but they wound up really smart. So I did a great job. 
And then as I got into high school, I was thinking like, hey, being a, a therapist would be kind of cool at getting to help people. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was seeing a therapist myself my senior year. And we were talking about different career options as I was exploring different colleges. And she talked to me about the social work field because she herself had her LCSW. And so I got to explore and look into all the different opportunities that a social work license has. And I thought that I would like to try that out and kind of see where the social work field takes me. To you, social work is not, it's not a job. It's, it's a passion. It's a mission. It's a purpose. Would you agree? Yeah, I would 100% agree. I can't really see myself doing anything but being in the social work in the helping field. Absolutely. Me too. It's interesting because for a lot of people, they just go to work and it's just like, it's a job. But for me, it's not. I have to, it's almost as if I don't, I don't find satisfaction in my life unless I'm doing something that I think is making a difference whether it be right. and for I, the world or for people individually. I would agree. And I think like what also like separates us is like when we leave our job and we leave our day, we still carry the stories of our clients with us. Yes. Um, and part of our work is 100% like part of who we are because of the connections mm-hmm. we have. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And those connections are really what, drive me forward it's being able like now again social work is a massive field in that you can almost work anywhere (laughs) (laughs) from schools to hospitals to legislation to policy well that is legislation policy and legislation to therapy individually to insurance companies to employee assistance programs there is a plethora of different avenues one can go down Uh, for me i i chose crisis line and now i signed on with the devil with an insurance company but what drew you into the school system i think a mix of like my earliest years as like a child in elementary school wanting to be a teacher and my experiences in the classroom um i have very fond memories growing up in school it was like my happy place Mm -hmm. And then when I got into college, I had to do a couple different practicums for my social work degree. Time out. What in the world is a practicum? So a practicum is where a student gets paired up with a different agency and a social worker within that agency. And you actually get to be feet on the ground doing the social work job. You mean to tell me that we pay money to an institution for a degree in to be able to do our jobs. And not only is schoolwork involved, but then we also get the opportunity to to actually do it. Absolutely. That's kind of I would say like the capstone of our undergraduate and graduate mm-hmm. experiences. Mm-hmm. So so we, we work we work like a full time job and <laughs> well going to school. And and we get paid for that, right? No. We pay to take the class credits to work a full-time job. Yeah, <laughs> so so I just want to highlight that because I don't know if that's very well known. But any counselor or person you see uh, with, a, with a mental health degree most likely had to, you know, uh, work 
um, without pay. In fact, not only did you not get paid for it, but you had to pay to work. So um, that's part of any mental health professional's experience. And it's a good thing to, to know. So tell us about this practicum. So my first practicum was my first year in my undergraduate program. And it was with a juvenile diversion program. And if you're not familiar with juvenile diversion, it is essentially working with juveniles, so children under the age of 17, who have committed misdemeanors Mm -hmm. and working through them with like different classes and different skills, both in the school and the judicial system and building those skills so they can show court Mm -hmm. that they don't need jail time, that they've repaired any harm that's been created, and that they are able to be productive and safe members of the community. Wow. So that was my first experience. And what I like, what I remember the most, that was 10 years ago now, but it was the school visits. It's when I got to be in the schools with students working with them that I found to be most impactful. Mm -hmm. So my senior year, practicum, which was 25 hours a week, plus a full school load, Uh I chose to be in an elementary school. So that elementary school was kindergarten through fifth grade. That sounds like a tough job. It was exhilarating. I was fresh faced, 21 years old, had no clue what I was doing, thought I could save the world Mm -hmm. and was so excited every single day for all the learning. Right. I mean, I did mine at the victim center doing individual therapy with sexual assault and and rape victims. Practicums are very immersive. What was it about? Now, again, your population is juvenile, I mean, crime. So, I mean, we're talking about the criminal justice system in many respects there, correct? For my first practicum, yes. Yeah. The second one was just school social work. Again, I, I think that working with children requires a special touch. I don't know if I'm really cut out for that. What is it about working with grade level school students that you find so enthralling, interesting, engaging? I think children are really hopeful. Mm -hmm. They are very quick to see the bright side of situations Mm -hmm. and to be trusting. Children are highly motivated to make changes and work towards goals. And children are hilarious. They're really funny. They are brutally honest. But most importantly, they have so much resilience and so much grit that makes working with these young people very inspiring. If you're working with the children, do you not also have to work with the parents? 100%. Mm-hmm. Parents are are key, especially if you're needing to see long-term success or if you're working clinically with children. Also, just like the day-to-day stuff that comes with school, um, the guidance and the mentorship that really is based just around the student. Mm-hmm. Let's take your job, right, as the director of student services. Let's break that down. Tell me, what is a typical day like for you? So my day starts about 6.40 to 6.45 in the morning. Mm-hmm. I like to get to work a bit early just to have some quiet time before all of our adolescent humans show up and invade the school building. And then at 
after my quiet time, about 7.05, we have a staff huddle, which is just some really intentional time to set the tone and the focus of the day with our entire staff, both teachers, leadership, support staff. So you mean to tell me that every morning, all of the staff, teachers, deans, social workers, everybody, they all get together and they have a little chit chat. We have a little chit chat. We stand in a circle. Sometimes we play some games. Sometimes we talk about (laughs) mission moments. What are you talking about? There's like a, like a special theme for each day. Like a, like a quote. So Monday is mission moments. Uh And that's where we kind of shout out like the cool things that are happening with our student um, or the things that they're learning. Or last week, a student who had been struggling in science got an 80% on one of his exit tickets. And his teacher was just so excited to share that with us and then get to share that with the student later on in class. So just like highlighting the good work of our students to make us remember why why we choose this work mm-hmm. makes it seem like a family we are a big you're like you're like a little village taking care of all the kids we... okay what yeah that's what we do very cute and it's very encouraging and supportive and it gears all of the staff around to the true purpose of why you're doing the job which is the kids absolutely 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 so we have different days different different themes okay so let's, let's hear um, them but ultimately 100%. So Tuesday is Team Tuesday. So that's where we play games. Sometimes they get a little rowdy and out of control because we have too much energy for 7.15 in the morning. I don't have that much energy at 7.15 a.m. personally. Yeah, I know. It takes a special kind of creature who wants to play games at 7.15 in the morning. The same creatures who willingly work with middle schoolers, I should say. Yes, this is true. Wednesday is practice, so we notice a trend going on in the classrooms or in common spaces. That's our time to practice it as a team, whether it's lining up for the hallways, dismissing for the end of the day, launching a lesson, asking higher level questions with our students. Whatever the theme is, we take time and as a staff, we will practice those skills Uh to sharpen them up a little bit. Uh Thursday are thank yous. And so that's a time where we just thank each other for support or helping one another out and then friday is shout out where we are shouting out the good work that our colleagues are doing and we have this little guy named griff because we're the griffins Mm -hmm. and each week griff Griff gets passed to a new like a different staff member to highlight their work it's so encouraging and team oriented. I love it. But you have to, like, if you are going to do this work, you have to know that there is a team mm. behind you that has you at all times. Absolutely. And that's actually one of the things I want to talk about towards the end of this conversation is how to handle the stress of this job. But this teamwork is definitely probably a key role in all of that. Absolutely. So after morning huddle is over at 730, we open doors to students mm-hmm. and our students, we have probably like 30 or 40 walkers where we have 250 students. Mm-hmm. We have 30 or 40 walkers. I would say probably that amount for car riders and then the rest are buses. So we have three buses that pick up our students from all over town. Mm-hmm. 
And I get to be the person who is outside rain or shine or this past week snow, 95 degree weather, 14 degree weather, unloading buses. You mean that you greet every single bus, like every bus, or do you just like oversee all the buses when they come in? So I should say we only have three buses, but I get on every single bus individually and do like a little every single day and do like a little morning check-in with the bus before they unload. So for every student that rides the bus at your school, they will see Rachel Trampler every single morning. Yes, before they leave the bus, I will I get on there. I do a little spiel, set them up for the day, and then we file off the bus and go to school. Wow. Well, that probably helps in connecting with the students and really knowing what's going on in their lives. If you're seeing them in their natural environment <laughs> every single morning. <laughs> it's the bus, their natural Well, you know, it's not... It's not in the classroom. Well, that's kind of encouraging. Uh, I bet the students really look forward to seeing you. I bet you have a big smiling face and encouraging attitude every day. I hope so. I, I'm a little too cheerful for my own good. In the morning, I'm a, mor I'm a morning person. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if they find as much joy <laughs> in my cheeriness as 13-year-olds at 730 in the morning as I find. <laughs> In my cheeriness, but I will say it makes for a great time for me. Oh, absolutely. And these kids, <laughs> whether they like it in the moment or not, they will look back and they will think of you. They will think of Miss Trampler because you <laughs> are holding a, a very important role in their life. So you set them up, get them set out off the bus. What happens next? So once we get inside, that's kind of when the day really kicks off and all the fun starts. My main work from like 7.30 to 8 is making sure all students are ready for class, whether that is checking in their supplies, making sure they have what they need, or some of our students will check in in our dean's office to make sure that they are just like mentally and emotionally prepared to handle the school day. I don't work the dean's office in the morning, but I like escort students to the dean's office. Hmm. So I'm assuming though, when they get sent to the dean's office, like luckily I, as a, I was a good child, Rachel, I didn't get sent to the dean's office very <laughs> often growing up. And I don't even know if we called it a dean. I think we called it a principal. I'm assuming that if a student is being called to the dean's office, that's generally not on good terms. It's like they've done something that they shouldn't have, and they are now in trouble. Am I correct on that? Yes. So a mistake has been made, and this, the dean's office is a time to reflect. So our dean's office is not like the dean's office of the movies or the ones that we have grown up with. It's not doom and gloom and punishment. It's reflection. It's conversation. It's re relaxing music on the Alexa to set the tone. But that sounds like a fun environment. I, is it possible that kids could intentionally make mistakes so that they could go hang out with Alexa in the dean's office? I don't think it is a fun environment because there's still a lot of structure to it. Like it's still voice level zero. Or if you don't work in a school, that means your voice is off and you are working on your reflection and crafting your apology 
So I wouldn't say it is more fun than class, but we also know that when students are coming to reflect because they have made a mistake, the last thing that we need to be doing as adults mm -hmm. is escalating the students further. Mm -hmm. So what exactly, you, you're talking about calming music, reflection, I mean, that all, what, break that down. That all sounds code. Those are, those are, that's lingo. <laughs> what does, what does this include? So I, I get mad in class and I punch Jay. What happens next? Mm -hmm. you, you're not going to punch Jay. That's a little much. Okay. I trip you, you Jay in the hallway. You have to for punching. I, I trip Jay. Nope. That's not allowed. not allowed. Absolutely not. So I will say yeah, what down. is really important about our school is we care a lot about the little things because we know that when we hold students to really high expectations coupled with high support, mm -hmm. we don't see big things like tripping in the hallway or a, or a punch like that is that's unheard of. Okay. Um, oh. The things that we these see are, more. The, oh, so these are, <laughs> these are, Oh, I'm going to say some things. These are white, middle-class uh, suburbs, nice families. You would 100% think so by looking at our test scores. Mm -hmm. On paper, if you take out the demographics, that would be a really, yeah, no, like on paper, I could see how it would look like that. But our students, our building is actually in the highest gang area of Tulsa. Um, so I the gang. highest gang area, like that's highest. not a great verbiage. Okay. It's like the most active gang area in Tulsa. Like it is the highest crime rate, um, lots of domestic violence, lots of shootings. It is where. So not a safe. There's a lot of lingo I could say here, but I'm not going to. You're working in a, a dangerous area. Uh, an area maybe perhaps on this lower socioeconomic level. Right, like it's mostly like apartment, Section 8 housing. I'm working in an area where you don't want to be an outsider necessarily. Mm -hmm. Even though you're in a school district, or let's not even say that, you're in an area, your school is in an area that is historically... Underserved. Uh, yes, thank you for the correct lingo here. Underserved, at need, at risk, at need, and yet your test scores are very high. Right, and not only like and and kids aren't tripping each other in the hallway. Yeah, no, that would be huge. So our that's where our school is located. I would say about fifty percent of our, maybe like sixty percent of our students come from the direct neighborhood, and then the other forty come from across town. Mm -hmm. But like fun facts about Tulsa, all Tulsa public schools, but one school, they have like 50 different ones are Title I schools. So just across Tulsa, mm -hmm. a lot of poverty racially. We're very diverse. I would say a third white, a third African-American, and a third Hispanic, like just right. So it's very, it's very split. But what we know and what we see every day is you take kids from underserved communities and equitable schools you prepare the teachers you hold students to really high standards with high support and they rise every time mm -hmm. whether that's behaviorally 
or academically. So the biggest things for us that we're seeing in our dean's office would be like a student talking back to a teacher because we take respect. We take it really seriously or a student laughing at another student while they're making a presentation because we never want a student to feel unsafe in a classroom or like they can't take academic risks. So what other schools may count as trivial, we see those as like the little things that if we get those right, our kids are going someplace. If we can teach our kids to be good humans, then at the end of the day, we've done what we've needed to do. Absolutely. So, and let's clarify for everyone, what grades do you work with? Like your school that you're working in, what? We are fourth through eighth grade. Okay. So not not kiddos. They're a little bit older. A little bit older. So you're definitely in the age and stage of learning your identity, learning what you think is cool, pushing every single adult boundary, social norm known to man. And that's like your developmental task right now. Uh, Puberty is also the second biggest growth spurt your body goes through besides infancy. And then we Mm -hmm. pile academic demands on top of that. So middle school just makes for a really fun time. Oh, absolutely. So you're, you're putting out fires. Okay. That can't be all that you do all day. What else? What, what happens after you, I mean, you're, you're getting students to the Dean's office. We know about that. What happens next? Like not with that situation, but what are other things you, you find yourself doing on a given day? So after classrooms are settled, everybody's in class, they're learning. I do generally like one of two different things that would fill up mm-hmm. my time. One of those things is I am with my special education teachers. So as the director of student services, I oversee all of our special education services. And part of that is also providing our teachers with weekly coaching so they can improve their practice. But to do that coaching effectively, you really have to be in the room to see what's going on and also to support your teachers in the moment. So part of my day would be spent observing and with my teachers. And then if I'm not with my teachers, you can generally find me doing some like group counseling with my students. Group counseling. So you're also doing therapy. <laughs> so that's kind of cool. Tell, tell, us, tell us about the group therapy. So group therapy, I like, I have kids separated by age range. So by grade level and depending on the need of the group, we work on social skills or impulse control, friendship making, self-management and regulation, just different skills that kids are needing to be more successful in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Wow. Like how many students do you typically have? Probably in a session, probably five to six in a group. And how do these students get referred to you? A couple different ways. We have parent referrals. Like if parents have some concerns um, or think that their students need extra support, 
teacher referrals mm-hmm. because they are front and center to see all the behaviors. And then we also take behavior data into consideration. So how often are you going to the dean's office and for what types of like infractions are you going to the dean's office for? In in working with these students, what is the most common or what's your chosen therapeutic or counseling theory or technique? Working what's what's your what's your counseling approach? Working with in a group setting, I always default to cognitive behavioral therapy. Woo woo. Everybody loves some good CBT. Everybody Okay, everybody loves CBT, and I'll be honest with you, a lot of therapists will tell you that they do CBT, and they don't. They just say CBT because that's what everyone says, because it's one of the most common approaches in working with people, and when done effectively, can be very helpful. Absolutely, and there's so many resources for CBT that have been created specifically for youth and adolescents and that can be modified really easily into the school day in a school session so cbt is um is my default because it works the activities are fun and engaging and that's really important for like to have student buy-in and then i also do quite a bit of incorporating different dvt activities such as like mindfulness and the grounding exercises and the approach of how dbt just goes about teaching self-management is really powerful if i am working individually with a student i am a big fan of narrative therapy because tell us about that I love narrative therapy because I think there's something so empowering about getting to tell your story in its entirety and process through it and also like rewrite your ending, right? Like write your narrative going forward. Uh And then as like the clinician, I always find it so humbling to bear witness to people's stories. And it's just such a powerful powerful tool for our students to be able to reflectively look at their experiences and game plan for going forward. Mm -hmm. I'm actually looking to do a conversation here in a few months on DBT specifically, because it is so, it could be so effective. Now, I don't know much about narrative therapy, um, but it, it really sounds like being able to narrate your life and change the ending which sounds powerful we learned about it a little bit in our grad school day stuff i know we were really focused on like bowen and structural (sighs) family therapy (laughs) i yeah so i'm gonna be honest i'm kind of a (sighs) therapy snob in in regards to some of the theories like some of them were just stupid and but foundational very important to what we do now cough cough freud but psychoanalysis is indeed a big deal so i'm going to back off of that but i was really into bowen's family systems theory and if it's not bowen i'm not really interested just the whole idea of enmeshment and (laughs) self-differentiation 
fascinated me. And in our program, I'm sorry, I am going on a little bit of a a rant here, but in our in our program, there was one assignment we had to do where we had to role play as the therapist using several different therapeutic techniques with our professor who happened to be Mormon and is truly fascinating in and of himself. Um, but anyways, I don't know why I went on that tangent, but I just thought of Dr. Haslam and I got all excited. So Seth loves Bowen's theories. In grad school, I never pictured myself doing clinical work. I had no desire to get my LCSW or do any sort of yeah. counseling. Yeah. Can we just talk about that for a second? Because I'm over here like wanting to, you know, clinically just, I wanted to jump in heads first and Ray's like, I want to do other stuff. And I'm like, what do you mean other stuff? I never understood it. So I just, but we all have different skills and that's the gift of of social work. Yeah. So I passively just kind of like went through our therapy units as one did, did remarkably well with them, but still didn't take it as a hint at that time. But, but everyone else saw it. <laughs> not me. So uh, that's where I first learned about narrative therapy. And then while I was getting my LCSW is kind of like when I found my, my therapy voice, if you will. And I just I fell in love with narrative therapy. Well, I think it really can be powerful. I've never used the approach personally um, other than that class where we had to pretend. And I love to act and I was always trying to impress Haslam. So it was like my it was it was like my birthday. I was so excited. I was on cloud nine and I wanted to just show everybody up. But anyhow, you did. You did that. Um, I tried, tried so hard. So tell us, in working with these students, whether it be taking these students to the dean's office for restorative reflection or providing group therapy, what have you found to be the most helpful interventions or techniques or perspectives in building a positive relationship with your students? This may sound overly simplistic, But Mm -hmm. relationships with students always begin with listening. Listening to their stories, listening to their perspective, but not just listening to the student, um, attuning yourself to the student. So having that connection, showing with your body language that you are actively listening, using reflective listening in your wording back to students so it's very much graduate school 101 right like any helping professions 101 building effective relationships it's called empathy (laughs) and rapport um, being able to start where the client is essentially exactly so starting where the client is is so important perspective taking with the student because they can build trust i'm sorry the the terminology just came to me person in environment pie that's what we were always about and always about pie and systems theory oh yeah i hate systems sorry we're i'm diverting so we're coming back so building these relationships with students is really about seeing them in their real situation understanding why they feel the way that they feel. 
um, being able to look at their environment. And I think that's huge. Um, it's the, it is the 101 to being a mental health professional or really being a good human. If, right. If we like if you don't honest. have a trusting relationship with a student or like with another human for that matter, like the helping relationship will not be effective. No, it cannot work. I want to go back over breaking down your school day. When I get inside the building, getting students set up for the day, singing our school song, obviously is a highlight of my morning, um, making sure everybody is into classes. And then at eight o'clock, our SEL hour starts or our social emotional learning hour begins. Oh, wait, we didn't talk about that. So I... Let's break that down. What it, What do you mean? Social, emotional, something? Social, other? emotional learning. So part of the mission of our school is to equip our students with a strong academic foundation, but also a very mm-hmm. clear moral compass. Because at the end of the day, if our students can't navigate their community and be leaders in the community, like we haven't given them what they need. So our social emotional learning program is very unique. It's the only program of its type in Oklahoma. And it's based out of a little school in Nashville, Tennessee, who revolutionized mm-hmm. this idea that we strategically put humans in relationship with one another and we strategically share stories and experiences from our lives, empathy happens, mm-hmm. right? Connections happen. We learn how to receive and how to offer support in really, really real ways. And these are the skills our kids will need to have meaningful relationships in adulthood. So... And so this... This happens every morning before they go to class? Mm -hmm. So it happens in their classroom with their advisories or pride is what we call them. So it happens in their classroom, but it happens before any academics start. So two days a week is working on badge work. And badge work, um, it's different projects that each student works on to explain different parts of their experiences. So one project could be a life artifact and you're working on your personal values and your family values. And then at the end, you bring a life artifact that represents that. Or one badge work that I did myself in the faculty circle was called, If You Really Knew Me. And you were through a series of questions of like, your happiest moment and your scariest moment and what brings you the most joy and what is the hardest part about school and all this, like all these different questions that really make yourself vulnerable to your community. So that's two days a week. And then two days a week, our students are in what is called circle. And circle is broken into a couple different components. The first one is true north. And true north is what we would know as mindfulness. So grounding yourself, Mm -hmm. centering yourself, dropping from your head to your heart. So you're ready for circle. 
the second part is check in and check back. And that's where everybody in the circle goes around, introduces themselves, gives a really strong feeling word, and then introduces the Mm -hmm. friend next to them. After that, the facilitator will check back with a couple different students who had either like a really strong happy emotion or a really strong negative emotion. So the community can either celebrate with those students or support those students. Then we move into work, which is where students will present their badge work. Mm-hmm. After work is appreciations. And that's where everybody can appreciate each other for like a specific act what value that act like tells you about that person and the impact that that person has had on you because of that act and then mm-hmm. it moves into closing ritual which is just like a cheer or a chant that each pride has so our students do that twice a week our faculty does it once a week your school is all about these pep rallies. I mean, you're just patting each other on the back like left and right. We love pep rallies. I mean, it's 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 evidently clear. I wanted to go over your schedule because I wanted to make sure we talked about that because I think that's really crucial. Social emotional learning. I would be interested in reading up some research on that because it sounds pretty impactful. In what ways are you seeing that positively impact your school? First, and these students right. Lives. First and foremost, our kids are so empathetic um, towards one another and towards their teachers, and they have become very good at perspective taking. Now that they've had the opportunity mm-hmm. to hear so many stories from their classmates, they are kind, kind humans who realize that everybody is walking through different trials that like we don't that not everybody knows about so it seems like they're a lot lower to reaction or judgment because of the relationships that are built our kids are really quick to take ownership for their mistakes and apologize to repair any harm to like the relationship that's been done because Mm -hmm. of the connections and the safety they feel within their prides. Mm -hmm. And I think in turn, also from like a staff perspective, it gives you a whole new respect for your students when you hear about everything they're facing before they even get on the bus at 630 in the Mm -hmm. morning, right? Or everything that they're facing at night while trying to complete all of their all of their homework uh, but instead of like lowering expectations our school does a really fabulous job of keeping the bar of excellence so high because we know that our kids can and every single single day our kids do they do such mm-hmm. amazing things and they are just such kind kind humans i mean it sounds like a very positive work environment And it sounds like you're making a difference. I mean, just in the way that you talk um, with such passion and conviction, how do you keep yourself organized with all of the different running priorities you have in a given day? So this is my very shameless plug for the Erin Condren teacher planner. I would Mm -hmm. love to say that I'm super tech savvy and just put everything in my Outlook calendar 
And while I'm getting better, it's all a lie. I have to plan with good old paper and pencil. So my planner is daily. It's like a full week spread, but it has different buckets of what I do. So academics, special education, English language learners, counseling, meetings, whatever it may be that pops up so I can kind of schedule my day into different categories of what needs to be accomplished Mm -hmm. and keep a running list of not just the to-do, but a to-do that's categorized. Um, And it helps me delegate when necessary or pull in additional support. And of course, Seth, it is all 100% color-coded and (laughs) has plenty of stickers involved. And I'm sure that it takes a lot of organization in order to be able to do your job day in and day out. I mean, you are truly multitasking quite a few things. Right, which is why I have to write it all down. And it also is like very grounding and in a way, very therapeutic for me to like color code Mm -hmm. everything. And my planner is like, like you're really proud of like Bowen. And all the work you did with Bowen in grad school, I'm really proud of how I organize and keep up with my planner. Well, <laughs> it is definitely a skill and it can be, it's very important. But that's a whole nother podcast. Um, if you ever want to have me back for like planning tips on how to, or like how to get organized, I'm your girl. Or I could just do an episode on obsessive compulsive disorder and have you as the center project. One hundred percent. Not project. Not project. Center. Center. Uh, center person. Because it is a little OCD, but it is it is so important when you have this much stuff going on. But let's let's look beyond the paper. Let's look behind the names in the paper. Can you tell me a little bit? Um, about a, a successful or satisfying case or a situation or encounter, however we want to word that, um, you have, have it handled. You know, tell us a positive story, something that um, really makes doing what you do worth it. Absolutely. So I think the first thing that is important to know is that, like, I view success in, as, in terms of self-growth. So you may not be like where we like 100% where you need to be, but you are actively on the path and making gains towards self improvement. I think that's really important in the helping field. So all of that to say, like what I view as success may not be what like the outside world who doesn't do like our work day in and day out view as success so a couple couple kiddos come to mind but one in particular and being FERPA or HIPAA compliant it's FERPA in the school world um I don't know FERPA 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 clearly I don't work in a school so I go by HIPAA. I thought that was universal, but I didn't know uh, yes. that the school district has has its own. So we're, okay. we're FERPA. So FERPA, let's, let's, let's be very FERPA compliant. And everyone, if you don't know, HIPAA and FERPA, it's all about protecting the identities of the people that we work with. 
we are held to confidentiality. And when you reach out or you talk to a mental health professional, your information is private. Now, as mental health professionals, we can talk in vague generalities about encounters or situations we've had. So removing all names and things of that, tell us the story. So what you can know about this little guy is he is a male and he's in our lower school. So somewhere between fourth and sixth grade. Mm -hmm. And he has at times when he has made a mistake, whether that's like talking back to a teacher or being disrespectful to another student, he's had some really rough patches with taking like ownership of his mistakes and being willing to go to the dean's office to have that reflection and restorative conversation. Not at this point, like to be honest, even after working with him for this entire school year, not totally sure what like triggers are 100% of the time, which is the fun and sometimes maddening part of working with humans is they're unpredictable. And when you think you have a kiddo figured out, they flip it all on you, right? They like to keep you on your toes. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So uh-huh. this little guy would just get so overwhelmed with that idea of going to reflect and he would begin to act out really, really negatively. And the way he acted out is he would run circles in our hallway, which is like maybe a little bit comical from like the outside and you have to see humor and things to be a social worker, but how's he, how's he running? Is he running upset or is he (laughs) running for fun? Is he running crying? Is he like, he's running for fun. Um, (laughs) he's running, he's running to not go to, okay. To not go to the Dean's office. Right. Oh, is he running from the Whoever teacher? Whoever is like the leadership team member, like escorting him to the dean's office. That's who he's running from. But he'll just. <laughs> We've got one on the loose. <laughs> he's he's running. So we can't catch him. Because here's what I will say is we, we co-locate with another school. So we have only like one hallway that fits in all 250 of our kids. So we have lactate on the floor to help direct traffic because we want to keep our hallways safe and fitting that many kids into one hallway at one time a lot so we'd like it to work Uh like a very well-planned highway system if there is such a thing highway systems should actually just base their highways after our hallways because they're safer but this Mm. child right Mm. we provide our kids with a lot of structure Instead of just like running aimlessly, what he would do is he would just run on the black tape in the correct direction over and, and over. And the first time he did it. Oh, uh, well, so he was a, he was, I mean, he's, he's still yeah, following the rules. That's what I love about him. So um, <laughs> we had like, a, we had probably a three or four week honeymoon period with the student where we didn't see any of these behaviors in three or four weeks in this school. 
we had our first track practice with him and I was blown away and I knew instantly that like this was going to be my kid like instant mm-hmm. instant connection so we worked really hard with like our staff and our leadership team preparing them with how to help de-escalate the student like what is the best support he needs what adult moves would actually escalate the student more so our staff knew what to stay away from and then working with family on a safety plan and like how to best support this kiddo and he was also in one of my group counseling sessions too with his own little groups and we were by october so probably about eight weeks which is about right for an intervention it normally takes like six weeks to start seeing any kind of like results and about eight mm-hmm. weeks we were seeing really really good results and he was seeing me like being able to like not act impulsively he was able to use his self-regulation strategies to stay cool and collected but then the holidays come and we know for mm-hmm. many of our students and not just students as adults we have had that experience where holidays can sometimes not bring out the best in us, right? We act irrationally, say things we shouldn't say, and it is the same for our kiddos. So not just for this student, but for a handful of other students, we saw like an increase in behaviors. So for a little bit, it was seeming, I don't know, the right word because it was never upsetting like I was never upset with this student but it was just sad to see everything this kid had worked so hard for be just like him regress in an instant and I just felt so sad for him because I knew that he didn't want this either like he he didn't want to be acting in this way so we did the mm-hmm. best thing mm-hmm. we could do for this student and it was stay consistent every single day in all of our interactions stay consistent emotionally in our responses to him but also stay consistent with consequences and praise and high academic expectations because we needed school to be his safe place right like school has to be the one place for kids right that's predictable Mm -hmm. well consistency is huge yes it is so important so we're in a brand new semester and i am like full of so much pride for the student because he is now doing so so well a week or so ago he earned you know a referral for talking back and instead of Mm -hmm. like running the hallways or being more disruptive or more disrespectful he was able to walk down to the dean's office i was in the dean's office at the time and he was able to verbally express to me that he needed a few more minutes 
to calm down before he was ready for our check-in. And then he was able to, Mm -hmm. with some support, complete like his reflection and his apology. And it seems like something that's like super simple or like really small. But for this kid, that is a huge, huge win. And for all the staff who have had a hand in supporting and mentoring him, it was a huge, huge win. And it was so awesome that day when I was able to walk him out to his mom's car and give her such great news Mm -hmm. of your child was able to use his self-regulation skills he was able to use his words to appropriately express his feelings he was able to reflect and do everything he needs to do to start the next day completely fresh and what seems so small and what comes so easily to most of our students was a really really big win for this student Mm -hmm. well it's all about for him, I mean, showing that amount of self-control, which was a, a major challenge. I mean, that's a huge Right, victory. which I think just goes to speak to when you're in the helping field, like the days can seem really, really long and the interventions seem endless. But like we don't ever get to give up on a client because one day like it's going mm-hmm. to click and people can change and people will change if yeah. given consistent support and opportunity. Right. And I think that's truly the the backbone of social work in general and specifically within the school system. What do you feel is, I mean, we talked, we've talked about, you know, um, helping students when they're um, dysregulated, helping them get to the dean's office, doing restorative meditation and and reflection. Uh, we've talked about group therapy. What do you feel is the primary role? Looking at all those different tasks, like what's the common thread? What is the primary role of a social worker in the school system? To me, the primary role and responsibility of the social worker in the system is to Um, equip students and families with supports they need for the student to be academically successful, right? Like at the end of the day, our our school institution exists to, to give kids education. So they are able to like provide for themselves and provide for them, their families and be contributing members to society so my role as a social worker mm-hmm. is kind of like a secondary role, right? I'm not a t- teacher. I'm not doing direct instruction. However, if we take away the behavior supports, if we take away the therapy supports, if we take away, right, like hooking up families with like local housing authorities or utility supports, then kids are not as ready to succeed in the academic classroom and environment. So by mm-hmm. giving those students right. those supports and linking families to resources, students are better equipped to handle the demands of the classroom. You know, we talked about a successful mm-hmm. story, right? And looking at the small steps, the, the small progress that one of your students made. Can you tell us about a, a situation that mm-hmm. wasn't successful? 
and and what would you or could you have done differently? Absolutely. So I think a situation that is not successful one that comes to mind happened a few years ago in a former position I was in at a former school. And when I think of the stories that are not successful, they all have a common thread. And that thread is working with students who have just disclosed some type of abuse or neglect. Um, mm. And what comes to mind mm-hmm. is this student and many other, many other students um, just do all the things, right? Like the student discloses and you report to DHS, you call in the police as necessary. You do everything within your power to help a student go home to like a safe home. And it is still not enough to get them the protection they need from their situations. I would say like those are the most heartbreaking cases. And like those are the ones mm-hmm. that will keep me up at night. Yeah. I, mean, I think it's important that you mention the fact that it does keep you up at night. Um that as social workers, as mental health professionals in the field, we hear a lot of stories every single day. Specifically in my role, um, but I mean, I only hear it on the phone. You have to see Mm -hmm. it face to face. Um, We're encountering people who who are going through a hard time in life and and hearing those stories can really place a, a I don't, I don't want to say burden, but, but place a, a weight on our shoulders. Um, do you find yourself bringing that stuff home frequently? I would say when those situations happen, yes. Most days I'm really lucky to get to, to some extent, leave leave my work right like I get to leave most days knowing that like my students are safe that my students are provided for and cared for everything else can wait until the morning but the situations and the days that involve DHS and the police and I will say like that is not right like that is not my norm that's not what I do day in and day out. Mm-hmm. I get to see so much good. But the days where you sit with kids who are finally have enough courage and are so brave in telling an adult about the abuse and then are so brave to repeat the story again to the caseworker and again to the police. All for them. And then again in court. To have to go home again that night and as they're leaving look at you with mm-hmm. big tears in their eyes and say like Miss Trampler please 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 like those are the ones that you that you bring home with you at night because because like it's hard and because you want all of your kids to be safe and be cared for 
and be loved uh-huh. and I respect I respect our DHS system and the work that the investigators and the caseworkers do and I don't envy their job and it's really easy to look from the outside and say why didn't you help this student more um it's really easy to do that so I I don't want to do that because I respect the work that they do and the decisions they have to make with the foster homes available, right? Like we don't have enough people in our community or really many communities who are willing to be foster parents and take these students in. Mm -hmm. So then it puts us in tighter positions of students having to remain in homes with more egregious Mm -hmm. behaviors. So I, I don't envy that job. Yeah. But those, those are the days that break me. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's talk a little bit. How do you handle the stress of this job? And we talked earlier about, you know, how the how having a team environment at the work helps. Right? You have pep rallies. You cheer each other on. You pat each other on the back. But you also are doing a different role than most of the people in that meeting. So those are teachers. That's a dean. You know, you're in a very unique role. So how are you managing this stress? I think for me, it's like my family and my friends outside of work. It's really important for me to be able to, at some level, disconnect at the end of the day. Um, so like building those relationships and going out and like doing fun things or going out and having dinner being outside whether it's like a run or a hike a walk or biking um that is probably like my biggest form of self-care and like how i just have time to like connect with myself so i can work through whatever needs to be worked through and then my favorite option, Seth, definitely has to be the good carpet cry where I call you late at night, you know, after laying on my office floor mm-hmm. and for 45 minutes because like, like it or not, that's the reality of the work we do. And mm-hmm. there are days and it's, mm-hmm. it's not the norm, but I would say once a quarter, right? Like every three months, like you, like I just have to have a really good mental breakdown with a really good cry in the office that nobody else mm-hmm. besides Seth Showalter knows about. <laughs> well, I think that it's so crucial that we have those moments. It's I don't I'm probably not going to do well in, in describing this, but when we put our heart out on the line, should I even say on the line? When we put our heart out every day trying to help people when we reach into the depths of vulnerability and help people come to understand who they are, specifically in your role as, as they're growing up and questioning identity and everything that's going on at home, I mean, you're doing a lot for people and that takes a lot out of us. And so often in a social worker role, we're putting on multiple hats all the time. So we're like constantly, like you're constantly transforming. You're constantly looking for other people. No one's ever looking at you 
or if they are, it's in a cliche way. Are you doing okay? How are you? It's not, tell me the worst thing that happened today. You know, um, we have to have moments where we break down or at least I, I think that's healthy, but maybe that's just yeah, us. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I think sometimes like my tendency is to get a little bit lost in the work that I forget like who I am mm-hmm. as a person. And it's generally mm-hmm. those really good cries mm-hmm. that one like make me remember why I started this work and why I do the 200 million things, but then also like remember who I am outside of social worker and like what I need outside of being a social worker. So I have days where I, I don't rarely break down and just ball and then call. Like that's not my, that's not my mental breakdown for me. Like I'll just in the week, it'll be like a really bad week. And I'll be like, listen, it, I need a Saturday of at least four tearjerker movies, of, and I'll do it. I mean, oftentimes, and then people will text me and be like, Seth, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm watching sad movies. And they're like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, this is what it takes <laughs> to be healthy um, because I need it forced out of me. But I think it's so important that we do that. And I think it keeps us real and honest. Um, with ourselves so that we can be there for other people. I would agree. And I think for us, it's so easy to not feel when we're working with clients because we have to be the ones that are making decisions and our heads have to be on straight. You have to be thinking with logic and with the law Mm -hmm. and with policy and not with your (laughs) heart. And there comes a point where you do that so, so much that it like it has to come out like you have to feel again and you have to know what it is to be human again so you can keep being like humane with your clients because what you don't want is to have that like a well this would never bother me right because all of our emotions have turned off and we have detached and we're not attuned to our clients like those breaking points bring us or like it brings me back into reality and it also reminds me of like the great weight that we get to carry with our clients Mm -hmm. i think that mental health professionals should be regarded as first responders some days it feels like that your job for sure Right there alongside firefighters, police officers, and the military, I, and EMS, I, I really feel the reactions and coping strategies for mental health professionals in the school system and also in crisis work seem to be very similar. To kind of wrap things, well, there's one thing I want to talk about first. So we in, in your school day, we didn't talk about what happens at the end of the day. So how do you wrap up? So I get to end the school day doing the dean thing. I am the dean at the end of the day. Um, So I get to be the one having the restorative conversations with the students, making sure they are ready to, you know, take the bus home or ready to just like go home prepared for 
the evening set up for success. And that is how I end like the school hours with the students. Well, I think it's pretty clear you're making a difference in people's lives and you have meant so much to me um, in my graduate program and our friendship means the world to me. And so I want to thank you so much for coming on today and talking about your experience and knowledge in this area. We need more people like you shaping the minds and hearts well, of a thank future you, generation. Seth. It was really fun to talk with you for a little bit. And thanks for listening to all of my stories. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of Mental.